are listening to the Star Lores Podcast. I find your lack of faith disturbing. An empire is only as strong as the arm that enforces it. And for a galaxy of a million worlds, millions of warships enforced total domination with what would be known as the Imperial Navy. Also dutifully called, quote, the Empire's Long Arm. The Imperial Starfleet was one of the largest navies in galactic history with a complex array of battlecruisers, support and logistic ship, fighters with machines capable of ripping planets' surface to barren wastes, to countless TIE fighters able to annihilate any enemy fleet. The millions of ships were manned by trillions and moved as a celestial god over the galaxy, with four goals as outlined by Admiral Conan Antonio Motti, blockade and cripple planets bombard enemy planets, safeguard the empire from criminals and pirates, and above all, enforce the emperor's will. However, this symphony of cellular movement within the imperial navy was disrupted. With the death of the empire, emperor who controlled it, the body caved in on itself, rotten and splintered, to only a skeleton of the fleet that once terrorized the galaxy. <coughs> Beginnings. The Imperial Navy evolved from the Old Republic Navy. The annals of history are rich and exhaustive in the Republic Navy lore. This fleet, in and of itself, was an ancient legacy that nearly spanned to the creation of the Galactic Republic and was officially recognized in 24,000 BBY. From those foundry years, the fleet was underwent several changes and several variations, ranging from gargantuan crusades and titanic battleships to splinter fleets to combat the pirate menace. It has found itself entangled in almost all of the great wars and conflicts on both the winning and losing sides, like the Sith Wars and the Mandalorian Wars. It is during this conflict where we would see the forefathers of the familiar wedge-shaped Star Destroyers. After the new Sith Wars, the Republic reformatted the Navy to smaller fleets to better control and patrol galactic quadrants. Again, the galaxy would fall into carnage with the Clone Wars and the Navy was reunited into a full armada strength to conduct military campaigns with the freshly bat-grown clone army. Local defense forces were merged with the passing fleets, only adding to the vast units of ships and men prepared to serve and die for the Republic. Once the Republic was saved from the droid armies and treasonous Jedi menace, Emperor Palpatine transformed the Republic Navy into the Imperial Navy 
with the Security Act Amendment. Once the Empire was formed, Palpatine began a series of pogroms and purges to solidify power within the Imperial Navy. A galactic level of imperialization reformed the fleet to mirror the virtues of the Sith Lords. Planetary defense forces were stripped of their identity and fed into the fleet of a million ships with a trillion men. Even after the war was over, Palpatine encouraged a continual buildup of the fleet, with the legacy of thousands of years of the Republic Navy now evolving into the new Imperial Navy, countless souls enlisted into the machine of the Empire. Despite the war being over, the galaxy was now exhausted and overrun by warlords and pirates running in for the spoils. The Confederate planets were still holding out on the Outer Rim territories. The Imperial fleet turned to pacifying troubled hotspots, and we see such soldier stories of the rise of Will Huff Tarkin, restoring order, or the ace starfighter Shea Hublin. A campaign soon rooted out the troublemakers, and by the discipline and unity of the fleet, the Imperial Navy ushered in a new era of peace and order for those who obeyed. The Imperial period between 19 BBY and 4 ABY was marked by stormtroopers marching in goose steps, TIY fighters screaming overhead, and star destroyers looming overhead, pronouncing doom on dissenters and inspiration to loyalists. There were some uprisings and many parts of the galaxy took their civil unrest underground, but it was generally promoted as a time of peace and prosperity, thanks to the Empire's long arm. Rumors of rebellion were quickly snuffed out. Organization and Administration The Navy was originally structured, with 12 admirals elected by Emperor Palpatine himself, comprised of brilliant minds, strategists, researchers, and of course, loyalists to the Empire. Further down the line, the Navy was divided into many branches and divisions within the construct of the fleet, featuring hundreds of thousands of personnel. It was a well-oiled machine fueled by desire to rise through the ranks, the doctrine of fear, and a stout naval code. Where naval officers started their career through the academy, or began as generationals, families who had long-standing military lineages, a typical cadet would begin at military prep school at a local imperial recruitment center. Through their years of training, they would branch off into various divisions based on their performance and skills. The organization of the Imperial Navy at its height was the formation of its sector group of about 2,600 ships. 
24 were Star Destroyers, accompanied by 1,600 smaller support vessels, with the smallest unit being TIE Fighter Squadrons. In the event of combat with the enemy, the Sector Group would form up six Star Destroyers with support to annihilate the threat. There were also variations of escort ships, patrol boats, and espionage craft. Within the galaxy, the Empire kept a stock of Star Destroyers within reach in the Core Worlds, as well as several depots of Star Destroyers in troubled zones like the Outer Rim. The Emperor also kept a personal fleet at his command for situations requiring his utmost attention. Decay in the ranks. At its zenith in power, the Imperial Navy boasted of 25,000 Star Destroyers and millions of support vessels and fighters. A Star Destroyer could bombard a planet's surface to submission, while its TIE fighter squadrons overwhelmed the defense force. The Imperial Navy was conjuring even more devastating technologies like dreadnoughts, super star destroyers, deadlier TIE fighter variations, and a certain Death Star. However, with the fleet ever expanding and growing since the formation of the Empire, cracks were beginning to show. With new ships being commissioned so fast, it became increasingly difficult to fully crew and therefore maintain and repair. It was seen as a weakness and exploited by rebel leaders like General Rican. Convinced the Imperial War Machine was top-heavy, with too many toys and not enough people to play with them. A rift started growing in the officer ranks of the Imperial Navy over the function of the fleet. Generationals, career men who carried on a legacy of military families from the Republic era, believed the Navy and the Empire was the natural evolution of the Republic. New and fresh ideologues, however, saw the birth of the Empire as a complete cutoff from the sick and corrupted Republic, and the Imperial Navy was to follow a new war drum. That of the rule of fear laid out by Grand Moff Tarkin. The latter practicing what they preached and carried out brutal and devastating campaigns like the Nimbus Sector and Quimar suppressions. It only divided the officers even further and many generationals became disillusioned with their glorious empire. Civil War. The disillusionment of the Empire, compiled with planets growing frustrations with the Empire's version of peace and prosperity, birthed the Rebellion and henceforth Rebel Alliance. Many senior commanders of the Rebel Alliance were actually Imperial naval officers, and even heroes of the Navy like General Dodonna and Adar Talon. Despite the Rebel Alliance being small, and a hodgepodge of small ships and fighters from various systems, they managed to hold their own when engaging the Imperial fleet. The rebels relied on a tactic known as stateless strategy, decentralizing their combat operations, 
so the Imperial fleet could not pinpoint and wipe out the rebellion. Despite the grandeur of the Imperial Navy, they could not control the vastness of empty space, and the smaller the attacks, the harder it was to find, to pinpoint, to strike back. The Imperial Navy began to realize they had a fatal flaw in their doctrine. They could not fight effectively against small fighters doing hit and hype engagements, something the Rebel Alliance had no choice but to adopt. The Imperial Navy ordered fleets of TIE fighters and further advanced TIE fighter technology to defend such attacks, but the pivot came too late. Rebel starfighters like X-Wings and Y-Wings laid waste to Imperial targets and convoy fleets, and even though the swarms of TIE fighters valiantly attempted to defend their motherships, Rebel fighters held higher shielding grades and were able to inflict tremendous damage before zipping off into hyperspace. However, the Imperial Navy was not to be undone by an array of tiny fighters. Within their arsenal was the array of thousands of Star Destroyers and millions of ships to overwhelm the Rebellion, if they could find them. That, and the unveiling of the Gargantuan Death Star, only seemed to solidify the immortal presence of the Empire and glory of the Emperor. The Death Star, however, disturbed many officers in the fleet, particularly those of the Generationals, thinking that the and suspecting that such a killing device would render the Imperial Navy obsolete. These fears would be laid to rest, though. New ones would arise when the Rebel Alliance unbelievably destroyed the moon-sized planet Killer at the Battle of Yavin 4. of a legacy. The Imperial fleet would be called up again to hunt the rebels down and punish them for the destruction of the Death Star, with several Imperial victories, starting with the Battle of Hoth. The rebels were on the run, and unbeknownst to them, the Imperial Navy was working behind the scenes to usher in new replacements for their late Death Star. Massive Star Dreadnoughts, Super Star Destroyers, sailed forth from hidden shipyards throughout the galaxy, and rumors of a second, more powerful Death Star was underway. The Emperor coordinated his fleet to route the rebels into a trap by revealing the location of the Death Star and then hold the rebels at bay for the fully armed and operational Death Star to destroy them. It would seem one way or the other, to the Generationals, the superweapon was the undoing of the Imperial Navy. A weapon so big the Imperial fleet wasn't needed. Where the rebels succeeded in destroying the Death Star and undermining the entire organization of a million to a trillion men. The rebels succeeded, the Emperor dead, the Empire in chaos. The Emperor now deceased, the Imperial Navy splintered into warring factions. Moths seized power in their realms, fiefdoms springing up among systems, and the whole organization collapsed. The Imperial Civil War erupted and devastated the Imperial Navy from within. The fleet was cut up among surviving commanders, with the Rebel Alliance, now the Alliance of Free Planets, moved to de-imperialize the fleet and integrate them into the New Republic. 
Several moths resisted, sending their remaining fleets into intense battles to try and halt the Alliance. Advances, but freedom was picking up speed. The galaxy was overturning the Imperial Order. By 9 ABY, remnants of the Imperial Navy were pushed out to a sliver in the Outer Rim. Resurrected Memory Within its death throes, however, the Imperial Navy was reunited, albeit briefly, by a certain Grand Admiral Thrawn, who rallied the fleet and sallied forth back into the galaxy core. The invasion took the New Republic completely by surprise, and Thrawn nearly reconquered half the galaxy, before a sudden halt with his abrupt death. Thrawn's resurrection of the Imperial fleet gave rise to a new era of warlords, each rallying the remaining Imperial fleet to pierce at the New Republic's heart, though the navy would never recover in its full strength following the aftermath of the Imperial Civil War. In 12 ABY, the Imperial navy reunited one last time with a devastating array of assaults against the New Republic under Admiral Dalla, a pupil and lover of Wilhuff Tarkin. After an early defeat, she surrendered her admiralship to Gilad Pelion, who carried on the campaign with stunning victories at the Battle of Orenda. However, all their territorial gains were wasted in the following years by warring moths, and the New Republic launched an assault that devastated the remnant Imperial Navy. Once ruling an entire galaxy, the Empire now had a handful of eight star systems. What once boasted of millions of ships was now whittled to a few thousand, with only 200 Star Destroyers left. However, despite the critical end of the fleet, the New Republic was forced to concede to a truce. Given throughout the campaign, the remaining Loyalist star systems were so heavily militarized, an assault would be suicide. Besides, there were now other threats in the galaxy. The legacy of the Imperial Navy continued to live on, as it still proved a deadly force to reckon with in the Yuzhan Vong War. Future galactic players like the Galactic Alliance and the Corellian Feder Confederation tried swooning the Imperial Navy's allegiance during the Second Galactic Civil War. And after a hundred years, around 127 ABY, the Imperial Navy had recuperated much of its former strength during the era of the Fell Empire. The Imperial Battle Force was no longer a juggernaut fleet. Though still outfitting several flagships, the fleet was mostly composed of smaller warships, perhaps taking a humbling page from the playbook of the Rebel Alliance many generations ago. After the Second Galactic Civil War, a subsequent Imperial Civil War erupted, and the Navy was divided in two. One faction loyal to the Fell Dynasty, the other to the One Sith. 
The fell empire was restored, and so it seems the legacy of the Imperial Navy. Perhaps those generationals, officers, so long ago were right in thinking the Imperial Navy was part of something that never died or could die. Rather, it needed to be reborn again and again, sometimes into something better, sometimes into something worse. Thanks for flying with us. Jordan here. Just wanted to let everyone know what's happening here at the Star Lords podcast. Star Lords is now on Discord. If you would like to join the Star Lords Cantina Discord server, you can find a link in the description or on any of our social media accounts. Reach out with a DM or email. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching the Star Lores podcast. Go ahead and give our page a like and send us a message. You can also email at starlorespodcast at gmail.com. Send us your fan art, Star Wars collections, or fan fictions, and you may even get a feature on one of our pages or even the show. Don't be afraid to offer corrections or add to any of the topics that we discuss on the show. We are also on Patreon. So if you want to help us pay the bills, as well as get a few awesome perks like bonus episodes, access to the private Facebook group, or the VIP section of the Discord server, head on over to patreon.com forward slash starlores and sign up for as little as one US dollar a month. And finally, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher app or YouTube, as well as sending us a five-star review on iTunes. This really helps us reach a wider audience. Enjoy the rest of the show. Everybody, welcome aboard the Millennial Falcon. This is Christian. This is Jordan. And we are currently drifting the stars uh, around the CNR construction yards. They're uh, long since been silent, but this used to be where they used to manufacture... All kinds of ships for the Imperial fleet, from the mighty Star Destroyers to the tiny TIE Fighters. It's uh, it's not the greatest view, but... <laughs> Very industrial. <Yeah. laughs> we thought it would be an appropriate place to record this episode. Indeed. Um, well, let's start off. Um, so I think one thing that people might notice right out of the gate from this episode is we didn't touch so much on the different ships and Voidcraft uh, of the, that make up the Imperial fleet. I think we'll sp- space that out in other episodes and things. So don't think this is, I, th- I feel like we're doing this with every episode. It's <laughs> there's so much content that it's hard to sh- cram everything into one episode. So just yeah, take it as like your first taste and that there's more to come. Yeah. But, one topic always like births <laughs> 10 new topics yeah, that you could cover. Right? Yeah. So you really have to like control like what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and and stay on, it. stay focused, stay on, on target. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, but I do want to talk a little bit about those ships here in the discussion portion of the episode, um, because they are like Imperial void craft. Seem to be like the most iconic Star Wars craft, like the typical, like the triangular Star Destroyer shape, 
is a one of the first images you even see in Star Wars after yeah, the credits. That's right. Yeah. And B, um, it's just like an iconic thing, shape, figure. And the other one is the TIE fighter. Yeah. Which also has an iconic noise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and high pitched. You, you should insert some of those sounds in this episode. Yeah, those sure. I, will. <laughs> um, I think it is kind of interesting because you have like the, uh, you had the prequel trilogy and the aesthetic of the ships then. And then, yeah, like, where did they get the design for the TIE fighters? Because they were so different from anything that existed. And, like, you would think that, even we talked about it a bit in the episode, that, like, many viewed that the Imperial Navy was just an evolution of the Republic Navy. Yeah. Uh, but it really was, did look very different in terms of its aesthetic. Um, it, I, I don't know. Like, yeah. You don't really see any kind of predecessor to the start to the TIE fighter. Yeah. Not um, that I can, I can, and think you see of. some pretty strong comparisons like the arc One Seventy clone trooper fighters, like very obviously like a predecessor for the X wing. Right. Yeah. You see Y wing prototypes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's no one ship. Well, that's not true. The Jedi Starfighters do resemble a TIE fighter, but it seems like such a radical jump from... And I guess we'll talk about this now. Uh, I intended to talk about this anyways. So the Jedi Starfighters are very elite craft for very... Like, your Jedi generals, right? Um, they're not mass-produced. They're pretty agile, nimble craft. Um, whereas the TIE fighters are mass-produced expendable cheap yeah um now one thing people might mistake with me saying that they're not bad um they're not bad craft they're just not very survivable but they get the job done and And i I don't know where the reference is but i do believe they are like more maneuverable than yeah they're nimble uh even like x-wings and stuff like that. yeah so they do have their advantages and when you're discussing like ship to ship combat in this scenario, it's not like this ship is better. It's like it has these advantages and right, these drawbacks yeah. and my ship has these advantages and these drawbacks. Yeah. And it's a matter of like the pilot's skill, how they leverage those different um, attributes of their ships against each other to win a dogfight. Yeah. Right. And even the scenario that they're in. Right. It yeah, can exactly. Lead to uh, which certain comes advantages. To, like, strategy and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So as we discussed in the episode, you have like, the rebels who have very souped up survivable craft who also have hyperspace capability so they can do hit and run or hit and hype attacks and disappear. Whereas tie fighters don't have that kind of uh, interstellar travel. Right. So they depend on being carried around by larger craft. Yeah. Um, But that being said, the entire Imperial Naval doctrine is to just swarm your enemy with star fighters, which goes into why TIE fighters are good for the Empire because they can mass produce them. Who cares if they lose 20 ships, right? Yeah. Can replace them at at cost. Yeah. Um, Which goes into also the second point I wanted to bring up is Imperial Starfighter pilots. They are actually a very elite core of of pilot, which, again, people might... Same thing with Stormtroopers, and when we talk about Stormtroopers, I'll delve into this too. But Imperial Starfighter pilots are actually insanely good... Um, but it's due to their tactics and their training. One, they're they're training. They're hyper aggressive, yeah. and very um, indoctrinated to be loyal, <clears throat> to the point of like suicidal. So, 
imagine more like a, a Japanese uh, zero pilot, a kamikaze pilot who's so dedicated to the cause that they will take more risks and do more dangerous stunts to complete the mission. Yeah. And they are also trained to think of themselves as expendable for the mission. So they're, they're borderline like suicidally fanatical pilots who are very talented and dangerous, but because of the, the method of war that the empire exercises swarm your enemy and just kind of take them down with numbers they end up becoming more disposable and that's why you see them kind of get clipped off um more, yeah, yeah more often yeah it makes sense yeah but also like if you look like an x-wing is kind of more and even like y-wings and and uh, all the other variant yeah craft, all the other yeah. variant craft like they are more <coughs> like conventional in how like you would see our vehicles in our world yeah like, they look more like a jet fighter yeah they, the the sort of um physics of them seems that way but a tie fighter is very different it's like spherical it it almost like moves on an axis you know yeah. like and it can it, pivot it the way that you'd have to pilot it would actually be very different i, I would imagine just look even looking at and it, i know it's it, it's the closest thing we have to like what it would feel like but in games you know like uh oh what was that what was that recent uh, Star Wars Starfighter? Yeah. Uh, I can't remember what the title was. Star but... Wars Fighter or something. Yeah. Um, but that has like one of the most sort of like realistic simulations of what it would be like to to fly in a Tie Fighter or Axe Wing in any of the ships that you have, and it's actually kind of tricky. It's really tricky, especially in the Tie Fighter, and like that kind of makes sense. Yeah. You know. So. And it again, it's a testament to your skill as a pilot to yeah. control that kind of weird. Dyna- movement dynamic yeah but yeah it's definitely like uh yeah i like the idea of like a swarm like it uh, like a swarm of bees is like yeah. approaching you right and it's like very intimidating yeah and, yeah cyber uh, hornets yeah <laughs> yeah and they're like suicidally yeah. fanatical so <laughs> yeah you're gonna get yeah death um, by a thousand stings <laughs> yeah um another thing i wanted to bring up is the common trope of naval forces uh, depicted as uh, nautical forces. So often you'll hear like a lot of terminology, rank systems, all that will be ripped from like our modern navies and then transposed into space. Yeah. Which is a, it is a common trope. Um, you see it in so many different sci-fi franchises. Yeah. 40k star wars like anything with big capital ships in space pretty much yeah. battlestar galactica follows that scheme. yeah if yeah. anyone's watched that show um halo yeah yeah it's just a common trope but interestingly enough in real life now that the americans have a space force yeah <laughs> uh they actually follow more of a they, they're a branch off from the air force like they recruit from the air force so wasn't the air force a branch off the navy initially I don't know. US. I don't know the history. Okay. Someone, uh, someone's raging on. Right yeah. Now. <laughs> no, it's not. Any history buffs? Yeah. Because I know, like a lot of the, uh, a lot of the deployment of airships are from aircraft carriers and stuff. Like yeah, that. and you like even in modern context, every branch of the military has their own fleet, for oh, lack okay. of a better word, of yeah. aircraft. So, like, you have army aircraft, you have navy oh, okay. aircraft, you have I didn't air force really aircraft. That, yeah. I think the Marines have their own aircraft or did have their own aircraft. I don't know if they still do. Okay. Um 
<clears throat> so it's not so much whether or not it, it's complicated. Yeah. Because, because, and I guess this will play into what we're talking about, but because militaries, one of their advantages of being so rigid in their organization is they're also very slow to change, slow to adapt, and slow to adopt new things. So when you have like a new branch of a military form, it often, like you were saying, does like come out of a pre-existing branch and they carry with them a lot of baggage that like if someone were to look at it for pure, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Efficiency. There's a lot they could strip out, but because it's so stuck on tradition and um, again, that this being, it's a two-edged sword. It's a strength and a weakness. Um, but it makes them slow to adopt and change and things like that. Um, which to tie it back to what we're talking about with star Wars is the, um, evolution of the Republic Navy into the Imperial Navy. Um, yeah. And you have a lot of holdovers. I, I, I know this is kind of a, a radical jump and we totally lost, <laughs> lost the, the, the trail on the last thing I was saying there. Um, but you have a lot of officers that served in the Republic Navy, just being adopted into the Imperial Navy. Yeah. Um, and they carry with it just because you have a new government, the individual soldiers, like they still have like a nostalgia for, the, yeah, for, or like a loyalty, a loyalty. Yeah, yeah. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, a loyalty to their government, even though it's changed its head. Like, yeah, it's head. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is like a, I I hadn't actually known of this term until we did this episode, but like the generationals, right? Yeah. Like the, the this sort of old brass who had sort of long for the old ways, you know. Yeah. But. Yeah, and um, again, it ties into that like whole military tradition. Yeah. Hard. It's hard for any military to to adapt and change. Um, speaking to the generationals. An interesting note is a lot of them, and a lot of, uh, we mentioned in the episode, a lot of early rebel leaders were Imperial Navy officers and pilots. I mean, even Han Solo used to be an, uh, an Imperial Navy pilot. Yeah. Um, so again, that speaks to that like eliteness of their training and like who they are as individuals, but they misaligned with what the Empire was doing, their values. Yeah, they were maybe truly Republicans that's a word I can use Republicans <laughs> at heart. Yeah. Um, and yeah, at some point they're just like, no, like this isn't, this empire thing isn't working. It's I, not. Well, what I we think promised. It, yeah, I think a lot of them, it, it's like one of those things that sort of happens by osmosis over like many years. Right. Because if you think about like when Senator Palpatine, uh, or actually, um, uh, What's the head head guy name in the Republic? Chancellor. Yeah, Chancellor Palpatine. When he um, sort of dissolved the Senate and as a temporary measure. Ah, yes. <laughs> Nothing so uh, permanent as a temporary yeah. government measure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, because he loves democracy and he loves the, <laughs> the Republic. Republic. <laughs> um. Uh, he he had to do it to save the republic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Wait, I'm seeing some patterns here that I don't like. Did he save the democracy? Is that what they were? Um, but in any case, my point is like, uh, um, probably a lot of like most military brass were just like, yeah, okay, well, we'll support you, and and we'll just keep. 
the 20 year gap between like the last film and the like episode, episode three four. and episode four, yeah. you know, sort of just, um, uh, uh, like the sort of institutional inertia can happen and you just, there's just like nothing you can really do to stop it and you just get swept, swept up, up in it. it. You're right. a cog in a machine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, I think like they probably, Probably had they seen what the end result would be in that first year of the dissolution of the Senate, they would say, oh, no, I would never do that or be a part of that. But yeah. you just kind of, you fall into it, right? Yeah. Like you kind of don't, you sleepwalk into it sort of. So yeah. um, I think that there's sort of that dynamic as well. You do see it with a lot of individual characters, which as we go on, we'll delve into some of those characters in the near future, Yeah, which ex exactly is that, right? They, they join an empire that, you know, somewhat resembled the Republic that they used to serve or used to know of. Um, and then slowly over time they realize either they don't realize it and they're still wrapped up in it or they do realize, and then they break away, retire, quit, you know? And you also got to remember sort of the context, like, it, because you have no idea of the future, what the future holds. All you know is the past and especially recent past. And all you know is sort of this like decrepit, corrupt uh, republic that sort of seems, seems like in and of itself is like a dying empire and in need of renewal, right? Yeah. And so this this sort of like chan the Chancellor Palpatine's program seemed like the change that everyone was everyone looking at. And yeah. again... With the chaos of the Clone Wars, like people are are want peace and security above everything. That's true. Yeah. So they're willing to sacrifice their val their democratic values for a little bit of peace and a little bit of security, yeah. <laughs> which is also a trade that um, I highly discourage. But you know, we're not the. It's always the devil's wager of uh, nation states and democracies yeah. and whatnot. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah. Um, you mentioned something there that I wanted to come back to and I totally forgot. I'm not sure. Um, oh, well, okay. So, so we discussed people who maybe kind of got brought into the Navy from the past, but also in those 20 years, you have people that were born and under the regime and never knew anything different. And how many of those people... Or were very young when... When it happened, yeah. and, you know, didn't care about politics at the time. They were a yeah. child when the empire was formed. And so those people now coming of age, joining the Imperial Navy, not knowing anything different. Uh, you can see this in states, let's say like North Korea, right? Where you were born under the regime. All you've ever known is a regime. You're obviously the good guys and the world is out to get you, you, you know you've only been exposed to the propaganda that has been produced in your country um, or your empire. In which case, how many of those people serve in the Imperial Navy as TIE fighter pilots, as yeah, that's right. engineers, as different ranks and roles? And how many get blown up whenever the rebels strike? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You'd have a very different perspective, right? Yeah. And like the galaxy is a big place. It's, it, it may not be the case that like, just under the gal uh, the empire's rule that every single planet was just this like uh, authoritarian like nightmare. jackboot <laughs> yeah, yeah nightmare like uh, dystopia it, it was probably a lot of planets were just fine and, and some planets well. maybe <laughs> even benefited from yeah, the empire right? that's right like, yeah if you're a core worlder like who cares what the filthy 
uh, provincials yeah. in the, uh, <laughs> in outer, the outer rim, rim are experiencing yeah. <laughs> when you've never been richer and you've never had more access to, you know, opportunity and right. for you and your family, right? Yeah. Um, but also beyond that, too, uh, there are places that were even probably hurting. There's lots of places that were destabilized by the Clone Wars or under hut control or, yeah, yeah. you know, ravaged by crime and pirates and like, no, the Empire's a good thing. They're coming in and they're getting rid of all these criminals or they might be the new criminal in town, but at least we know who they are, right? Yeah. yeah. They're the, the biggest criminal. <laughs> yeah. But at least they keep all the smaller criminals away and they leave me alone. Right? Yeah. And like I said, you don't know the future. Like it's always a sort of um, a devil's wager with everyone when they, when they want change, right? Like to, because their situation is really terrible. So they want change. So they, um, uh, will they sort of, they'll gamble on maybe someone who's uncertain. Um, I know even in, and not to invoke Godwin's law here, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're uh, talking about the empire, but I'm going yeah, to, let, let's invoke Godwin's law here. Uh, obviously like the treaty of Versailles in was like very devastating to, um, Weimar Germany and like it built up a lot of resentment. Also like Germany's like high hyperinflation, got really bad when actually the UK put a ton of sanctions on them. And like it, it actually resulted in, in like hundreds of thousands of German, maybe tens of thousands. I think maybe the number I heard was like a hundred thousand German deaths as a result of sanctions from the UK. Yeah, that's where and, you saw those images of like Germans with wheelbarrows of money. Because yeah. Inflation yeah. just took. Such yeah. A yeah. And like people were starving. And so there was just like, it was, it's very easy for like, uh, you know, a politician to like take that anger and that resentment and like turn Manipulate it into, it yeah, into, turn it into a political movement. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and so like, yeah, I mean, I, I, it seems like human nature, sentient nature, if you will, <laughs> <laughs> in the context of Star Wars, it, it, it is like, uh, it's not so unbelievable that like a Palpatine character could sort of leverage that and yeah. use it as a rise to power. Yeah. Yeah. You see it all the time with how tyrants rise, right? They just, yeah. take, that's right. Take a situation that's bad and they're like, Hey, bet on me and I'll change things. And yeah. And, and yeah, and going back to the Navy, it like, it's not inconceivable that they would like remain loyal to, to, uh, Palpatine, right? Yeah, and, and the new regime. Yeah. yeah. And especially with like more authoritarians, they often get, will give top military generals like very high positions and, and, uh, well protected positions within yeah. the reg new regime, right? Which so. also to say, um, kind of a sticking point between the generationals was that a lot of people who displayed loyalty to the empire were actually promoted over people who were promoted on merit. Right, yeah. So the empire because of how it's like it's ideologically driven, yeah. it it uh rewards loyalty. rewards loyalty yeah. above all. So which could isn't be, the worst calculation. I get it cuz you don't want people uh destabilizing your program. Sure, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, but by that same token, you're also not getting the most yeah, qualified yeah. people to lead your navy, which right. then leads to whatever screw ups down the road. Yeah, you get more incompetence. But yeah, at yeah, the top. Yeah, yeah. And that also helped drive a divide. But between, less risk of mutiny. Yeah, things like that. Yeah, yeah. it's all a trade off. Right? Yeah, that's right. Um, how much incompetence will you tolerate? Yeah. <laughs> and also, if you have someone like Darth Vader, kind of cleaning up <laughs> the incompetency yeah. from the top. Um, yeah. 
whenever they Palpatine's fail. Palpatine's dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, that also helped to create a divide between the um, generationals who came in, like, drafted in under the Republic yeah. and the new yeah, the new, new Imperials, yeah. the true believers. The loyalists, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah that's about everything i had about talking like big picture politics with the fleet like i said we'll we'll delve into the nitty-gritty of individual ships and yeah definitely want to get into that too and that kind of stuff in, in future episodes but this is kind of like a high level overview introduction let's say to the imperial navy yeah there's also a lot of like interesting just one more side note there's a lot of interesting if you look at like all the ships and weapons um, there's all sorts of backstories behind them of like the who manufactured them yeah. and who got rich off of like the, the, <laughs> producing this, war like, material in, that in, would never industry. happen. Jordan. I don't know <laughs> yeah. what you're talking about. I think that's also like super interesting too. Yeah. that like kind of plays into the 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 like layered story. Of, yeah, it feels like a living universe when like that gun was produced by this company. Yeah, and this company has a whole history and that's they true. also produce these weapons and these ships and. Yeah, which you see a lot of that. Like the TIE Fighter is a CNR uh, pr- product, um, yeah. as was the Death Star. And yeah. we talk about Wraith CNR and his relationship yeah. to the Empire, right? So all of a sudden his company is getting all these government contracts to produce all his weapons for yeah. the Empire. Yeah, it's all like a like interconnected web, right? Yeah. Like which That I would think- never happen in real life. <laughs> No, but it's like interesting because <laughs> then you're following all the, you're trying to follow all the all rabbit, threads. All, yeah. yeah, all the rabbit trails. Yeah, which that. is then you end up trying to write an episode about something and then you're all over the map. Yeah, so. I know. It's, <laughs> anyways, uh, I, I think that's it. All right. Well, we'll uh, leave this industrial wasteland <laughs> and uh, set off to greener pastures. <laughs> <laughs>